And I looked out and there was this big red blinking UFO. I can just say this, something's going on in the woods. Something's going on. They're not dogs, they're not coyotes. What could it be, right? I had an encounter with a skunk ape and it completely altered the course of my life. I found a skull. I think you guys are gonna wanna come build this. Put them out, put them out, put them out, put them out, put them out. I just say it, I just say it, I just say it. Sightings of a UFO hovering over a barn? Millie woke up from a dream, and when I went into the bedroom, she said there's a monster on the wall. They saw that the creature had run through a barbed wire fence. They were able to obtain hairs. They sent the hairs to their lab, and it came back as an unknown creature. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another fun-filled, exciting episode of Bizarre Encounters. Bizarre. I'm Ghost, one half of the uh, the team here. I have uh, Shane is with us, as always, my sidekick, my homie, my little brother. How are you, buddy? What's up? What's up? We're, we're like equal co-host sidekicks. Can we both yes. be each other's sidekicks at the same time? Oh, absolutely. I we'll mean, I might be worse. a little hard to stick in your pocket, but you, you <laughs> fit my pocket a little bit easier just because I'm taller. Hey, I'll just uh, hide in your little shirt pocket. <laughs> yeah, be like little buddy, little buddy, woo, little buddy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what's what's going on, man? What, uh, haven't haven't talked to you much. Yeah, I was gonna. That's say a the lie. Same thing. Well, yeah, we have. It was just been one of those busy weeks where work was just fucking retarded. You know what I mean? And I don't know. Honestly, it, it, same for kind me. Of, yeah, and I fell behind on on releasing you know episodes for my main show and trying to research for this show and and uh it was just a whirlwind of and now it's friday and we get a record so (laughs) you're telling me man i've been setting up like crazy for this show this week um got some good stuff coming up to just pregame people a little bit i guess uh we're gonna be going on america's scary land soon to be talking about Dogman and beast of bray road Mm -hmm. um we're going to have Anton from Strange Brew coming on the show. We're going to discuss uh, whether something is an alien or a cryptid. We have a few different ones that we're going to talk about. And uh, by the time this comes out, the episode should be dropped like a week or two ago for uh, Cryptids of the Corn. Uh, I popped on there we're talking about Wendigos and a bunch of different weird theories and stuff. So if you haven't had a chance, go check that episode out. Fortunately, Ghost wasn't able to make it to that one, but it was still fun all the same. And he was with us in spirit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's Hence what the ghosts name. do, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's tough uh, with my work schedule and what have you. The the later episodes and, and recording, um, I would love to. I'm just I'm 45. I like my sleep. You know what I mean. You get to a certain age. When I was young, man, I could run on three hours of sleep, no fucking problem. Now it's like nine o'clock. I'm I'm sitting there dozing my head. I'm like, okay, I got to go to bed. Hey, man, that's why we're weekends. a team, though, because if one of us can't yes. make it, the other one makes it. That's that's what, what we're doing here, man. It makes life a yes. lot easier. <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. And I don't know about so, you, man, but I've been putting like a lot like I love my other show. Don't get me wrong, but like I've been putting, I feel like a lot more time into this show lately just okay. because I feel like it. Well, I don't know. Like, I love my show because I get to have like the open conversation type style. Mm-hmm. But this show is great because I get to do like my research side just just because of that. And the fact that I have to do the research for it, I feel like I've been putting a lot of time into this show more so than my other show. So I feel like I'm like, I'm not neglecting my other show because I have episodes until November. 
but I'm mm-hmm. trying to like find my balance still. You know what I mean? Because yeah. like I was saying on the last episode, I'm trying to make both of these shows like equal in my mind. You know, but mm-hmm. I love having a having a co-host that we have a set time and I can just be like, yes. brother, this is when the show's happening, and you're like, yep, got it, scheduled. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because trust me, uh, your your hard work does not go unnoticed on my end. Um, I'm very I'm grateful to have a a, a partner on this uh, journey for this podcast that that has the time to, you know, reach out and book all these guests and, and promote and do this and do that. And trust me, I, I, I do appreciate everything that you do. So gives me something not to do go man. unnoticed. I yeah. enjoy it. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Cause with my regular show, I'm, I'm almost stretched a little thin over there. You know what I mean? Because finding time to record with guests sometimes interferes with nights that I normally would be uh producing a, you know a show and you know I I do I release three three shows a week over there which to I mean me I'm the same with me over there too cuz I got yeah. Monday Friday and then big dumb inquiries on Tuesdays so yeah so it's 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 one of those and you know you fo- focus on it it's your brand and and like I said you know this this too is part part of my brand as well but I, I, hands down, I mean, you're, you, you hit the, you hit the ground running with it. So I like how I this is starting to form it. though. I feel like it's, uh, you know, we're only a couple episodes into the show, but because we had our shows previously, it has a lot more ground than a show normally would at this point, but mm-hmm. we're starting to get the listens sliding over. I mean, for a show just starting off and only being, you know, two, three weeks old by now, um, a little bit more than that now, but where we're at recording this about two, three weeks old. Um, you know, we're about like 50 per episode, so really not, not too bad. So, you know, we're hitting the ground running even on that aspect. So for everybody that is listening and already a regular listener of the show, we do love and appreciate you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if If you you can take that, reach out. Yeah. Yeah. And if you, even if you have bizarre encounters, you want us to read in the beginning of the show, like we're saying, or if you want to record yourself talking and we can put it in the beginning of the show, or if you say you want to be completely anonymous and you record yourself talking. I can change your voice, do whatever. If you want to type out a story, I can change names. Whatever it takes to get your story, we're more than happy to do it. And if you have a weird story, you want to share it, but you're scared of the backlash from it possibly, but you still want to know other people's thoughts on it, we can be your middleman. Like If mm-hmm. if we have listeners that respond to us about your story, we can pass the information to you and we can be the middleman for you. So whatever you need to get your story out, because you know you'll feel better after you finally get to tell somebody if you haven't told somebody set us up we're two generally nice people and we would love to love to sit down and talk to you yeah we ain't gonna judge you that's for sure if anything we're probably some of the people that'll listen to you with the with the most open mind to hear your story because we've heard some crazy crazy off the wall story oh i don't want to use the word crazy but some some very bizarre i'll use that word bizarre stories and you know we've added some validity to them like both of us have had Mm -hmm. this uh guy named tony rodriguez on our show who's done Mm -hmm. a 20 and back and we are more than happy to sit down and listen to his full story didn't judge him at all for it anything like that so share your stories with us because you know that's the only way the show is going to grow and while you're at it drop us a review because we haven't really had too many reviews on this show i know it's just starting off of course but with every review we get it'll help boost us up and then it'll hopefully get some more people off of that because the more reviews that you guys give us, the more we're going to pop up when people are looking for a new podcast. So if you want to take do your part to help this show grow, you don't even got to spend a dollar, man. Just sit down for two seconds. Either you can just give us five stars. If you want to write out something nice for us, that'd be awesome. Even if you want to tell us that we suck, 
if you give us five stars in the process, we appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't even want to go to Apple, just go to Spotify and have five stars walk away. Yeah. You don't need, all you got to do is listen to 10 seconds of an episode. Mm-hmm. Boom. Drop, drop us. Uh, actually, you're already listening to this episode. If it's not on Spotify, go on Spotify and finish it on Spotify. Drop a five-star review. Yeah. We greatly appreciate it. So to get into today, we have an interview today. So we're going to try to mix it up and uh, not just constantly do blocks of the same thing. So kind of expect that for the most part, we're going to try to go back and forth between our dive episodes and our interview episodes. And then like I was saying with Anton, we are going to do some dive episodes with other podcasters as the guests. So uh, yeah, today for you, we have uh, Greg Walter. He is the author of Ridgewalker in Two Worlds. How's it going today, bro? Wonderful, wonderful. How are you both? I'm doing, doing great. Good. So uh, for anybody that doesn't know you, uh, why don't you give them a brief description about you, your book, and what you do? Okay, cool. Um, my name is Greg Walter. I inhabit the West Coast, primarily, um, mainly Southern Oregon. I'm I'm down in uh, Southern California right now, but um, but yeah, I have a background in several things in natural history. Uh, my hobby, it's a crazy hobby, but I love it. It's um, I basically search out old Forest Service maps to find the old pack trails and go out there on the ground and explore all this stuff. And um, and I've been doing that for for lots and lots of years. I was a commercial mushroom picker. I've done gold mining, treasure hunting. Um, I've, I've worked on fishing boats in Alaska. I'm currently right now, I help people with their Medicare insurance. And, um, and then I also serve on a couple of boards up in Southern Oregon. One is the Crater Lake and Oregon Caves Natural History Association, um, where, you know, and this is a, I guess, while I give a plug here to national parks, anybody that visit national parks to go into the visitor center and buy all your gifts and t-shirts and fuzzy stuffed animals, there because all of the money through the natural history association goes back to the park in the form of grants and so um it's a great way to contribute to the park and their grant programs and all that all right there's my plug for national parks um so the um so the topic i'm taking on here it was it was based on an experience i had um about 27 years ago and it was in a remote area along what I call the borderlands, which was uh, Southern Oregon and Northern California. And from there, um, when that happened to me, it took me down this obsessive path of research. And this is what I ran across and also studies I've done with regards to, and also you know, mainly interviews with some of the tribal elders on these topics and how it spilled over not only from the giants, but also into the little people and they're immortals, they're gods, they're heroes. And, um, and so at any rate, I wrote a book called, called Ridgewalkers in Two Worlds. Let me hold it up again. And, um, and it, it's a sci-fi magic realism. So I put in the elements of story and romance and, you know, all these things of having a strong antagonist and, um, and from there playing with all of that, but sprinkled throughout the book, it's, it's based on my real experience. And the first four or five pages of it pertain where I give a where I give a very detailed description of my real experience, which I'm glad to recount here on your podcast. Yeah, we definitely love to hear about your experience. Yeah, because uh, I, I got to tell you, you had me at two things. Uh, you had me at commercial mushrooms. Okay, <laughs> I love going out and foraging for for wild mushrooms myself. I think all three uh, of us do. <laughs> yeah, uh, this time of year, you get you get your 
chicken in the woods, hen in the woods, your lion's mane, stuff like that. So yeah, I've been out when I have time to, to do it, go, go out foraging. And you also had me at Crater Lake because that lake is very mysterious. And what, and I know this is a little off topic of what your book is about and, and your experience, but the lore behind Crater Lake and how it lures people in almost to kill themselves is just bizarre. Like, Sorry. unbelievable. Was that the yeah. one you were talking about a couple of shows back where there's like some yes. kind of lore about like a water dragon or demon that like lures people in? Yes. Uh, like, a, some say it's a native, uh, if, if, if I'm getting this right, native, uh, a young Native American boy uh, that, that haunts the lake. Um, others aren't, aren't so sure it could be skinwalker related if I'm, if, if I have that right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of interesting lore there. Um, you know, you know, a lot of that's drawn from the Klamath tribe. Uh, there's also the Chiliquin there's, and there's several subgroups there within the Klamath tribe. And, you know, of course to them, it's a, it's a highly sacred area, mainly because of the fact that they had villages 7,700 years ago that were washed away when the entire Klamath Basin was reformed, when that, when that whole mountain, Mount Mazama, imploded. In other words, sank down upon itself. It sort of blew up, too. Um, I mean, there's ash along, I think it's the Salmon River, which is over in Idaho. Um, there's like belts of ash over there from that eruption and the amount of ash that traveled eastward. Um, but yeah, it, it, it did these damaging things. I can send you a picture I have that looks like, it's like a, um, this is from the Sand Creek Canyon, and it looks like a shaman screaming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really bizarre. I just caught it right at the right time of the shadows. I've gone there since, and I still can't find the doggone, you know, that that exact shadow, you know, but but it's really spooky. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool stuff. Um, you know, it's a fascinating place, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because uh, before it was ever really discovered, the shamans actually are the ones that that kept it such a guarded secret. Like, they were the only ones that knew its location and would keep others from from discovering it. So the fact that you caught a shadowy shaman figure is is really that's really cool and exciting. It just oh, shows that their presence is still there too. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And you know, um and, and now I mean they get so you know, we get 750,000 people there and everybody goes to the rim because you know they want to see the lake. And mm-hmm. um and so you know and you can go out on Wizard Island and there's tours and stuff like that. Um, we spent one night out there with our Natural History Association, kind of on like a science thing, you know, and, and of course, everybody was asked, you know, well, what brings you here? Why do you want to come here and, you know, and see the night? They were like, well, we want to see the night sky. We want to see the sunset. And, you know, I raised my hand. I want to, I want to visit the toads because um, there's these beautiful Western toads that inhabit the uh, Wizard Island proper. And um, boy, when the sun came down, they came out and the bugs are everywhere. And so it's summer. And so this is their time of feasting. And, you know, they have about all of three and a half months before they have to kind of plan on plan on their rehibernations again. And um, it's a it's an interesting life. But the Western toads to me are just fabulous. Um, Yeah, there's problems happening there, too, because crayfish were introduced in the in the turn of the century and they're eliminating what they do is they eat the eggs of the Mazama newt because there's a there's a rare newt or it's a newt that only occurs in in uh, Crater Lake. 
and they're slowly getting wiped out from these from these crayfish. And so, um, so yeah, there's my natural history spiel. Um, <laughs> nice. But, you know, the thing about the area, too, is that it's got a lot of springs. And springs anywhere are can be viewed as sacred places. And I'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. Yeah, let's get back to your encounter. I'm, I'm curious to hear about this for sure. Ah, okay. Okay, cool. Super excited. <laughs> that happened back um, at a time in my life when I was going through some changes. I was working on fishing boats. Uh, the boat almost flipped. Um, you know, and to a lot of the people that work up there, they're like going, Greg, I mean, appreciate the exaggeration, but that kind of stuff happens to us quite often, you know, probably once a year, but I freaked out and, um, you know, and, but, but anyways, just so, so within that, I, I decided to go on this trip and it was going to be like about an eight night or nine day pack trip. And, um, and I left an area, um, or I left and went up on this road and, um, and I drove out to the end of it, and I take off in one direction, which was a sacred area, and I knew it as such, and I, um, and I spent one night there, I burned some sage, it was a very beautiful night, um, I then packed up, went back to my truck, reloaded up stuff, took off out on this other hike, and um, that was like a 60-mile loop hike, and, you know, the way it showed it on the map, oh, look, there's a trail, yeah, right, um, you know, these, these trails would sort of come and go and branch into little animal trails and, you know, um, but anyways, um, I get out to this place where there's this beautiful, um, like a glen of these big cedar trees and some meadows and stuff decide, okay, I'll spend the night there. Um, in later years, we went there and it was a communal bear pooping place where there were piles and piles and piles of bear poop all in one spot. And it's like the bears, you know, that's the latrine over there. Kind of. <laughs> but anyways, um, um, so, I'm, so I'm spending the night out there and I went over to this spring to get some water. And, and I looked down, I see this beautiful salamander, this giant salamander. I went, oh my God, this is so cool. And I grew up as a child with these guys as pets. And, and so I was completely at home with this. I actually called him the name that I called my, my pet salamander. And, and I think something, something must have been listening, I guess. You know, I saw it as just a beautiful salamander. Okay. So the next, so then from there, I pack up, I take off out of there, go to my next destination where I wanted to spend the night because it was a small branch trail that took off out on like a separate ridge line. And I wanted to go see this area. And by the way, this area does not get does not get many visitors because it's kind of low elevation, these mid elevation ridge lines that just don't have the sexy big mountain, you know, with the snow capped peaks and, you know, the crystal lakes and all this. And so so nobody's really drawn to this place. But I wanted to go there because it's a wilderness. I mean, it's really and truly no humans really go in there very much. And so, and so I thought, okay, this dog can hunt. Um, and so, so, so anyways, I set up my pack. I met, I met like this amphitheater and it's right below the main ridge line uh, where I could hike up about maybe 150 or so feet onto this, you know, onto the ridge and look out over the whole region. And so I get up, so I get my stuff all set up and I walk up there and I'm walking on like a, what's well, a pretty good little trail going up. And, 
And, and, and in the amphitheater, another thing I should mention too, was that it was right on a, uh, it was a contact zone. And so between Bayside and Serpentine, Serpentine's unusual because that's the Earth's mantle. It's as though a big chunk of the Earth's mantle came to the surface back during these major, major earthquakes, you know, I don't know, a million plus years ago. And the, um, actually longer than that, um, and serpentine is interesting because of the fact that it's low in calcium, high in mineralization. Most plants die. There are plants that survive it, and they're considered what's called serpentine endemics. So there's just a lot of rare plants. There's carnivorous plants that eat insects and stuff. And um, yeah, these are the Darlingtonias. Um, all right. So anyways, but then the day side has more granitics, more conifer kind of, kind of feel to it. Um, the other part of it was with the serpentine, it was more or less like open these Jeffrey pine and incense cedars. And so, and so, so I'm up on the ridge, there's these little ponds up there, small, they were like snow melt, little tarns. And, um, and I'm just looking out over the region, there's a lake on the other side. Um, you know, so, so I, so I soak in the views, come back down, the sun's setting, I go back to my tent and I go over and I decide to give myself a wash, you know, just with some warm water and, um, you know, that I put on my cook stove. And so I walk out to this place and there's a big flat rock and I went, okay, this is cool. This is a perfect place for my little bare feet. And, um, and I'm pouring water over my head. I look down, I see this footprint. I go, oh my God. Okay. This is cool. Um, but I was freaked, you know, cause it's like, wait a minute, this is a human bare footprint, very large. Um, I did not expect this, not at that place. Uh, and it was weird because over by my tent, there was mud there where it was smeared with these footprints, but they were smeared. And so I thought it must have been a couple of bears fighting, you know, and, and there's a lot of bears in these mountains, lots of bear. They're all over the place. I love them dearly. Um, and so, so at any rate, the sun's going down. I, um, I then, I'm just kind of hanging out. And as the sun goes down in this amphitheater up against it, you know, where it starts climbing steeply towards the ridge, somewhere there, I all of a sudden hear this crash, 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 boom, boom, like this going over. And there was some ponds there and this thing stops and starts drinking. It's drinking slurp, slurp, slurp. And it was down probably on his hands and knees. I couldn't see because it was still dark. And by the way, this was all happening on a waxing moon. It was a, it was a blue moon that month. And, um, and, and at any rate, I, um, I then, you know, of course I'm frozen, you know, hearing this thing. And then I hear a splash, 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 crash, crash, stomp, stomp. And I'm watching this thing doing a semicircle around me, probably about 80, maybe a hundred feet away. And then I finally get a good view of it. And it was a biped, definitely walking eight and a half foot, maybe nine foot tall, something around that range. Um, and it looked over at me with these icy gray eyes and it just kept walking as it's watching me. And I, I mean, I'm just, it's like, it's like this thing just read my mind. Um, you know, and it's as though it was seeing right through me, everything about me, you know, um, I was just absolutely freaked, but, um, but I was holding a flashlight and I kind of felt like this thing said to me, don't even think about it. Like, don't even put that light on me. Not happening tonight, kiddo. Um, and so, so at any rate, I'm, I'm freaked out. This thing just goes around and it's following a, you know, a pretty good path to avoid me. 
um, and drop down into where it's a major canyon. And, um, and from there, um, I mean, disappears into the conifer forest. That was it. But I probably had about maybe two and a half, maybe three minutes with this thing between the drinking and the, and the, and the walking around me. Okay, so I'm still like day two on this trip, or technically day one. I then continue, but before, like the night, so the night, I mean, I've, I'm obviously freaked out, but, you know, around midnight, I just get tired and crawled in my tent and went to sleep. And so no no rocks thrown at me, no no footfalls, no no knock, no tree knocks, you know, none of this stuff. It wasn't throwing branches at me or nothing. And, um, and so, I, so I wake up in the morning and I decide to go down to that lake that I described earlier, um, looking around the lake, no footprints, nothing up there. And then I realized, wait a minute, why would that thing be drinking water in that amphitheater if, if he came from another place? Because there was water right, right on the top there. He could have drank water up there. And so, so this whole thing's not making any sense to me. And, um, and I'm thinking about it all through my trip. I run into bears at, at like a separate bed over there was another lake, you know, further on. And I just felt like I was just attuned with it. And, um, and there's a weird story about the Sioux, about the Sioux Indians, where basically, you know, the goal was to just be able to walk over and touch your finger with a Bigfoot's finger. And, um, and what that would do is um, it's like you would then be inheriting some of his power, some of his, you know, just this connection with nature and, um, and you know, being able to just be part of nature out there, which is really fun. You, you can learn a lot. Um, and so at any rate, I, I continue my loop hike. I, I go ahead and head, head down the hill. One of the weird things I saw driving down the hill was a little Martin that went running across the road. And in later years, um, a friend I knew, a colleague, so to speak, he, um, he did a whole study in there where he was trying to find fishers, I think. And he ran across his footprints of Martins. He trapped one of these guys and basically brought back out of extinction the Humboldt Martin and um, that had been extinct for the last like 70 plus years and um, testament to the wildness of this area. And, um, and, so, and so at any rate, just as a side note, um, from there, it launches me into slowly studying about these things. I took some classes from some Native Americans and I asked, we were studying, it was stream ecology with, with the Native people and how they, you know, you know, how they work on stream courses and, you know, the different things you learn about, you know, because they view the landscape as their hardware store, their pharmacy and their grocery store. And so, you know, it's all, it's all right there. It just depends on how, you know, your knowledge of it and, um, you know, how best you can use it. And this is our kitty. And um, <laughs> so, so at any rate, yeah, right. Um, so, so yeah, tails up, um, you know, but, um, but anyways, um, within all of this, I'm gleaning knowledge over the years. Um, I, I took this class and, you know, and I asked the guy, I said, hey, you know, I happen to run into one of these things, you know, and the guy begins to describe to me, he says, well, you know, from time to time, shamans go up on these ridgelines and they're seeking knowledge, basically, and they view them as the upslope people or the teachers is what they called them. And, and as such, 
um, they would go up there and they would, you know, they knew they were on the right path if they if they stopped at certain prayer spots and, you know, did like a burning of sage or some kind of cedar wood or something like this. And um, but also they knew they were on the right path if they came to a spring and they saw a salamander in the spring. And I'm going, okay, two steps back. This is weird. Um, Cause I didn't mention anything about the salamander and forgot about it really. Um, but then it just blew my mind. Cause here's this guy telling me about the salamander I saw. And the salamander is like the gatekeeper. He's the one that says, okay, you're in. And then that next night you would have this encounter. And when you have the encounter, you would sing a song of introduction to, to the cryptid, to, to the teacher. And then you would sing another song, obviously in native tongue, um, seeking knowledge. And the knowledge these things would impart, they would probably do it telepathically, I would guess. And um, and what they would in, what they would impart is more or less around food survivability in the region. Like, for instance, there's going to be no salmon running next year, so plan ahead. Um, there could be a blight on the acorns, you know, so when you harvest, you might have to harvest more or pick some at lower elevation or gather some of the black oak rather than just rather than just the coast live oak or, you know, like this. Um, different things to help them survive what could be a calamity. Um, you know, a recent example in that area was a fire that happened and where the fire then from there got hit with a thunderstorm, it dumps two or three inches of water kicking all this ash into the river, well, the, um, the potash or, the, or the, um, the phosphorus introduced into the river displaces the oxygen and for about a 20-mile stretch kills all the fish, every one of them. And that's the kind of thing that, a, that the teacher would be able to say, hey, you're going to have some problems here, and so plan ahead. Um, and that's, that also gives power to the shaman when he goes back to the tribe to be able to say, look, folks, prepare for this, do this, take these steps. You know, this is what I learned. They know. And, um, and so, and so that's, that's how their world rolls. Because in sometimes, although we view like these areas as, you know, the horn of plenty as far as food with the salmon and everything, what do you do in years when the salmon don't run? And it, it, it's not very frequent, but it does happen. And so, and so that's kind of what, I mean, I'm gleaning all this. I'm kind of taking notes and just remembering what this man's saying. But that led me into a whole project of research in various books about the, um, you know, about this kind of interrelationship and how it ties in with their creation lore. And this creation lore kind of extends worldwide really you know but but just in north america as far as our sasquatch and you know this is where it's like you know you hear these stories about like the oklahoma bigfoot and the bigfoot over in the i mean wherever and it didn't make any sense to me i thought you know this is flummery these guys don't know what they're well it ties in when you think about the tribe and the um and the shaman and the relationships they probably had with these things um, and so, and so, and, and the salamander back to him, you know, there was an, in one of my research papers I read was that how that salamander is actually what that is, is that there's two types of little people. There's, there's land babies and water babies. And what I ran across was a shapeshifted water baby. 
Um, um, you know, and that's and that's something that's in their lore that you know he shapeshifts as a salamander that greets that greets the shaman, and then he goes forward that next night and and has this conversation with with him, and um, and so and so you know it just fascinated it just fascinated the hell out of me about all of this because in a sense I'm not just telling you well I think and well no it, you know. It's more around their lore and my research digging into that and finding this stuff out. And so, so yeah, and it ties in hugely with nature, the natural world, how, how, that, how that has its ebb and flow. And, um, yeah, so, it's, so it was fascinating. How old were you when you had this encounter? How old was I? Yeah. 27 years now, let's see, math problem. Um, I was <laughs> I was like in my mid-30s. Okay. All right. Yeah. So you weren't like super young, you know, as a as a child. So you you know, you you'd already had some worldly experience at the, at, at this time to uh yeah. kind of you know rationale and, and, and put things together. So yeah, yeah, this is fascinating. Yeah, it took me years to piece it together. And and you know, even to this day, like I remember last year. I heard the Ron Moorhead tapes on the Sierra Sounds and um and what that was doing. Um, you know, that was that was a trip because I was listening to the the weird noises that the Bigfoot were making around his camp up there in the Sierras. And mm-hmm. um, I, you know, there was one that just I oh, wait a minute. You know, so I thought back and it was like three years before I did go up to the high mountain lake and big peak, you know, kind of area. Spent the night. There were some campers there that left on the same night I arrived. And so I had the whole place to myself. I take a dip in the lake and, you know, do all the usual things. And I'm sitting there and I hear this, you know, like this. And then boom, silence. And it was loud, you know, um, what the hell, you know, and it just freaked me out because I just I'd never heard anything like it. And I thought it must have been some coyote doing some weird whatever, you know. Um, but I just kind of blew it off and then pan ahead to 2021 listening to the Sierra sounds. I went, Oh my God, that's what I heard up there. And, you know, and so the interesting thing that the interesting thing with that is that I looked up the rough area there around the, you know, around the Sierras. And I noticed that the native tongue was in Hokan. And um, and then I looked into my area, and there's one area there. It's a pretty large area, but but one area there in that part of Northwest California, and then into into Southwest Oregon, that's what they speak also is the Hokan tongue. And so that's what Ron did his research on by going into Mexico, because that's because that's the primary language of, of the natives down there. And so and so and you know we have to think of these things not in our not in terms of us but around the native people and the people that these things have been exposed to for the last, um, you know, at least few thousand years. Um, you know, that's another interesting part to this too, is that I think the native people haven't really had much exposure to these things up until about the last thousand years, maybe 2000 years. It doesn't date back that far in their history. And so I just think it took them probably a good thousand years to figure it out on how to approach these things and what to do and how they can glean knowledge that can help the tribe. Yeah. So, and that was, yeah. Going, uh, do you have Native American heritage to you? Because it seems like uh, when you're in I that don't. experience, you're kind of set up 
like to have that uh, connection experience. Like you're like almost there, but didn't quite like know what was going on at the time. So I was curious if it had some kind of attachment or kind of like knew why you were there. And that's why it didn't seem aggressive or like it got away from you that fast is because it was almost waiting for you to like sing to it so that it could come up and have that connection with you. Yes. Yeah. And see, that's the thing is that I didn't have the training, you know, and so, and so I wasn't, you know, I'm not a native American. Um, You know, I just, it, it's just, I've loved nature all my life ever since I was a kid going on Audubon trips and, 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 you know, doing all this stuff just as like a six-year-old, seven-year-old, you know, mom taking me on these Audubon field trips. Um, and so, you know, I just had that connection and I did all the right steps. And it took me once again, years to figure that out. Was that, okay, why, why this, you know, and it, it's like the puzzle pieces all fell together as I learned more. And so for me, it was just a very unusual experience. And it was just something that the timing was probably right. My, my approach was correct. All of these things fell into sync, but stupid me, I didn't, I couldn't sing in the native tongue and I didn't know the songs. And so to gain that knowledge and what would he have told me that I could have put to any practical use anyways, other than going down to the tribe and saying, Hey guys, I know I'm just like the hippie backpacker, but you're not going to believe what I learned up there. You know, <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, not happening. You know, um, and of course the shamans and all these folks. I mean, that's why, like, you read Pilates' book on on the tribal Bigfoot. You know, they're not gonna they're not gonna give him the time of day. Um, you know, for that matter, any of us, just because this is knowledge they don't want to share, and um, and you know, and it falls in like if you follow. If you lived like in the region there and you went to some of the dances and stuff like this, and these aren't like country hoedowns, these are you know like a deerskin dance, a jump dance, you know, stuff like this, their style of dancing and what those dances represent and how that some of that can spill over into it's like what they're trying to do is gain um, respect, acknowledgement, um, you know, even love from their immortals, their little people. And so, and so it quickly comes back around to that leprechaun on the box of lucky charms, um, you know, um, but the little people, um, but <laughs> anyway, um, you know, I mean, it's just, it, it's just something that I think, you know, when, when you look at it, I mean, it is a form of deep ecology. Um, one of the things that was kind of an ancillary thing that fell out of that for me was that I would then later um, fall into the business community in a town up there in Cape Junction and um, and basically gathered business support, went to Washington, D.C. twice, um, actually got to meet the Secretary of the Interior at that time, it was Sally Jewell, and get the Oregon Caves expanded. And so, and the Oregon Caves had a Bigfoot experience with this guy that's written books on it and, you know, the Bigfoot people and how they talk regularly and send postcards and stuff. Um, you know, I, I mean, whatever, you know, but, um, but it is something that, you know, this guy had this experience up there. And so the Oregon caves is kind of on the rap sheet as far as, you know, as far as a place to go see Bigfoot, um, you know, yeah. And so, you know, then they had a, it was called, I think it was sobs, the Southern Oregon Bigfoot society. Um, I never joined sobs. Right, right. (laughs) So, (laughs) but um, but you know the other 
the other point to this too was that because one of my friends you know see a lot of my friends are in the natural history circles and so they have taught me also just from their rolling their eyes back and you know me digging into the other side of this to be a bigfoot skeptic and you know as to how many hoaxes have been out there was the patterson gimlin movie really real or were these guys in a pinch because it was late october and they had to produce something because the rains were coming and so and so here comes so here comes you know roger patterson experience in hollywood and how to you know work his way around a costume or two um you know and then and then the guy telling the story on he was the guy in the you know you know in the monkey suit i don't know you know that one that one but you see the thing about it is is that it would just follow this this legacy of hoaxes and you know um the best story i remember hearing was the guy in texas that was the the foot criminologist and then it was going after going after criminals based on their footprints and the thing there they gave him a bunch of these casts and you know and he looked him over and he said 98 percent of these like nine out of ten of these are hoaxes um they're just not right but you've got two of them one from northern california another one from like up in southern british columbia that the way the foot laid out the you know all the dermal lines everything like this on that foot structure he said they're real you know and he said whatever these are you know you folks have got something running around in the northwest that, that you just don't know about yet um and the crazy thing about that was that this guy didn't care one way or the other he didn't care if bigfoot existed or flew to the moon um you know and so it was a great unbiased opinion from a non-scientific guy but knew his way around footprints um and that's and that's the thing is it it's like you got on the one side these are not in the fossil record uh we don't have good physical evidence there's some you know but it's but it's sketchy at best um you know and then on the other side to this you've also got um the footprints and the sightings probably 98 percent of those are being hoaxed or you know they're they're not genuine but then you get that two percent that yeah that's the real deal you know and how do you sort this you know um and so that's so that's a difficult one and then the other question too just like what bob Pyle asked he was the one that did the um the movie the dark divide um you know he's a butterfly expert that 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 got two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to find out about bigfoot um he was our guest speaker at a at a dinner for an environmental conference um you know and but i mean the thing from that was that I remember he said, you know, do we have a bipedaled anthropoid running around the cutover forest of the Pacific Northwest, largely going unnoticed? And, you know, he was about 80% there. He said, yeah, we probably do. And I, being the skeptic, I mean, for a minute, I, you know, um, and that's why I called my book In Two Worlds, Ridgewalkers In Two Worlds. And, um, and the point to that is, is that, from all my research and all, I mean, just to boilerplate this down, um, that I feel like these things have an ability to step in and out of our world, however you want to interpret that. Um, you know, um, and it's interesting with dimensional theory, back in early July, there was a cool little news release about the discovery of new particles that they found in the Hadron Collider. And that that's going to be the mechanism and the research and the science that's going to bring us one step closer to dimensional theory, I think. Um, 
the the other one that was really cool was the discoveries from the James Webb telescope and how I mean like as each week passes they come up with some imagery or something like this because now they can see into these galaxies oh my god how much fun is this you know um and so can we get to play with now I mean that's what I did with played with the traversable wormhole and you know all this stuff um you know um yeah and one thing I love about my hippie friends uh, one of them is total hippie furniture maker and so forth like that. But he has a brother and the brother is a guy named Kip Thorne. Kip Thorne is, uh, well, now he's professor emeritus, but he was the head of Cal Poly out here with the technical Institute. I think that's what it's called. Um, you know, and he was the one that him and three other research scientists got a, um, they won the Nobel prize in being able to develop um, a piece of machinery or a device that can find exploding black holes in the universe. Um, I mean, how cool is this? And, and if you ask Kip Thorne about traversable wormholes, he's like, you're nuts. <laughs> they don't exist. <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, it's like, it's intent, you know, but other scientists say, well, it's possible. And here's, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson got into it one time about the space time continuum and, you know, to look at it like a rug and the rug, what happens if the rug where it's like, it's always flat. And so you see it linear, you know, as far as it being a linear distance from point A to point B, but what if that rug gets two big warps in it? And now all of a sudden you've got point A to point B, you know, like 20 times closer. And, you know, and then could you have that jump, that, that traversable wormhole that travels from A to B? And so that's what I played with in the book was, you know, of course you got to play with portals and traversable. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, but, but, you know, in reality though, you know, we're in, and, and, you know, another one of my friends too was that, you know, he was a student of Carl Jung for a lot of years. And he asked me, he said, well, Greg, what makes you think this wasn't a Jungian archetype? And uh, I had to stop for a minute on that one. And well, let me think about that. Um, you know, and the only thing I could think of with the archetypes or my rhetorical to him was that, well, do archetypes leave footprints? You know, I mean, these are very vivid hallucinations. And, you know, if you, if you think hard enough, I mean, this thing will appear, but do they leave footprints? Do they leave physical evidence? And so, and that's what stands in the way of the science being kind of, you know, where in other words, scientifically, this isn't happening, but we still have the sightings and we have the footprints. And so, and so this is where, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I've heard also some of these guys like Tom, what's his name, Tom Powell, I think writes about this, where he feels like they live in these subterranean, et cetera, and, you know, that they're beneath the earth. Well, you know, if you guys are familiar with grottos, uh, you know, there's a caving group, you know, they're clubs. And, um, and these guys go up and down and sideways in caves. And, you know, and so there's, you know, like one of them we have is the Willamette Grotto, and they're all over that whole lava field up there in the Southern Washington Cascades. And so why aren't they running across? Oh, yeah, we chased out three Bigfoot the other day. And yeah, I found a skeleton over here and nothing, you know, and so, so there's just, once again, it comes back around to this, you know, um, since we only know all of 3% of the universe, um, are we going to learn some future time as to how dimensional travel can happen? And what does that look like? And where do they come from? And why are they here? And, and then how long are they here for? Are they here for a day, a month? You know, um, I would guess a month. Um, the thing I saw was very athletic. I mean, this thing could chase down a deer at a dead run and clunk it over the head with a rock and 
you know, he's got, he's got a meal for a week. Um, you know, and so, and so it's something that I could see where also that the thing could travel great distances. I mean, I want to say like within several hundred miles uh, where I had my sighting. And then also, did I get to see this thing basically step through that world to ours? Or was he just cloaking is what I think is one term they call it. And so we will never know, um, you know, but but if he did step through, I mean, the weird part about it is wherever he was, or whatever he was doing, he was sure thirsty, um, you know. And so, so yeah, when you start connecting the dots in my little story, it's kind of interesting because, you know, when you got the science, you've got you've got all these things going on, and then the native lore, and the native lore, like I say, I think it extends you know across the nation. Um, yeah, the things like, for instance, another one too was the whole story, and I put this in the book on where um, I think it was about Rip Van Winkle and his experience with with these with these elves or these dwarves that basically he helped them carry a cask of drink, and um, and the night lasted twenty years, um, and so then he reemerges into the town, you know, into the town, and. Um, and but the thing about it is, is Washington Irving had never visited that area of the Catskills, and I think he wrote the book from London. And um, and the fascinating part about that though is that buried in the local Seneca lore was a story about a squirrel hunter that ran into what was called a JGO or small people, and that um, that that night lasted over a year. And so um, and so did Irving know about that, you know, about that local lore? when he wrote the book in the 1820s, I think, 1830s. And so, and so, you know, there's just these, you, know, you start connecting all this stuff and you're going, wow, okay, wow, all right, this is cool. You know, um, and that's, that's what's just fascinated me. You know, um, that's, that's the bookshelf there and I've got more, you know, it's all about Bigfoot, spirituality, little people, um, our own gods and heroes, their gods and heroes. Um, yeah, there's another book here that's kind of cool. This is all about the UK, and um, and it's a field guide to the little people. And this is all about Europe and Italy and you know all these places where where you know they have all the different you know, all the different critters running around in that region. Um, you know, and so it's so it's, so it's universal. You know, mm -hmm. and that's what makes it so fascinating. The Menahuni of Hawaii. You know, um, when you look at places too, like for instance, the Pendak Orang or Orang Pendak, as they're called, um, you know, now there's a possibility where we could have a physical being because of the jungle there in that part of Sumatra. And, um, and this thing only standing four feet tall. And, you know, and there's not many of the local natives that have crawled around, you know, into the far corners of some of those places there on Sumatra. And so, um, you know, and why the short? Haha, -ha. that is what I think is that because they've had to co-evolve over centuries to adapt to that environment to to be able to sustain, be able to live, and because of the food supply. And so this is one of the this is one of the hangups with Nessie and Loch Ness. It's great to have this great big, you know, dinosaur-like creature, but what is he eating? You know, um. Does he sweep up a cow every once in a while? Um, <laughs> Did you, have you heard the whole theory about uh, Nessie possibly being um, a giant salamander and people just like miss 
misunderstanding what it is um because there's like a scientific theory that they should theoretically exist in europe but there wasn't any that existed in europe so if Uh it is a salamander i mean they could sit down on the bottom of the water for months at a time and not need food so that could be why you don't see them too often and there was a whole thing where uh farmers would give sheep to the monster in the lake you know um to try to feed it so one like if you're doing that into salamander, it may not need to eat that often because people are directly giving it food. So it kind of that that's my view on it. I kind of I kind of feel like Nessie is probably a giant salamander, and if it's still there, you know, so be it. But also, um, it may not have been able to get back to the area where it breeds. So maybe that's why we haven't seen Nessie in such a long time is because it was a salamander and now it died off. Yeah. And so, and, and, you know, I've been reading about these. That's good though. That's really good. Yeah. I've been reading about these legends of the Nahani Valley of the South Nahani up there in the Northwest territories. And, you know, that's another place where it's so vast, you know, and they're saying that there's still, you know, like these Pleistocene relics, um, you know, short faced bears and dire wolves and all this fun stuff still alive. And that's all great and fun, but what are they eating? You know? And, and so is, is there, but maybe the area is so vast, they've got caribou and, you know, various kinds of elk, um, you know, they might be able to pull it off. Um, you know, and it's like, I, you know, and then those, those mud pots up there, that fascinates me because you have these like small valleys with this, with this hot springs that create almost like a temperate rainforest or a, or a tropical, even subtropical. And so in the subarctic, you know, um, and so, but, but if nothing else, you see, when you get into these places where people don't often explore or, you know, it's still this vast kind of unknown, it's kind of fun because you can play with these legends. And at one time, I mean, you know, the Inuit and the Aleut and all those folks, I mean, they're, yeah, these things definitely were there, are there, you know, um, you know, and that's another place rife with little people. Um, there's plenty of stories up there. So that's now, when you say little people, are you referring to uh, what is commonly known as uh, they're basically like a two foot tall uh, Native American looking being? Um, yeah. Okay. Because that's one of those things that I feel like a lot of regions, like you were saying, have their their version of it. Because even when we did an episode on right. Yowie, there's little people that are connected to the Yowie as far as Australian legends go also. Right, right. And so, and so the one I follow, I mean, this is just one of many, but this is from the National Geographic back in 2003. And this is the lost world of the little people. And this was the Homo florensii or Homo florensis. And, mm-hmm. um, and within that, I mean, this thing died out about two or excuse me, 11,000 years ago. Um, but was an example of where was, was that a, basically a primate that evolved as a homo sapiens, but then had to kind of devolve as far as being able, its adaptability to that area, as far as the food survivability. Um, now little people, I guess we could split in three ways. Um, one are like people that afflicted with dwarfism, definitely in the fossil record and so forth, but they have a medical ailment. We know about them, you know, um, um, you know, like this, the other one is where you get just really small people. And there's an example in India where there's, where there's a guy that's 56 years old that stands 22 inches tall. And, um, but once again, that's like a, that's like a hominid of sorts. And so, and so that one we can relate to very easily. The little people, these from the book here in the American elves, um, they're going to be these spiritual beings. And, 
Um, I have two friends, my friend here, who's the author of that book, he was discussing a guy, this was a maintenance worker up at Mount Rainier National Park. This happened about three years ago. And this fellow was out, he was, um, there was like a little sub or like a little shed or something that had a generator in it. And he was out dinking around with this generator. It was September, the first snows had fallen up there. Um, I, I don't think it was that far from the Paradise Lodge, but, but at any rate, this guy was up there and, um, and he heard these footfalls in the snow and he looks out and he sees this thing about two and a half feet tall, half deer legs, half like baby, um, ah, like this. And he's freaked. He's like, what, what the hell is this? And it goes running off into a little side gully. Boom, gone. I mean, he probably had about four seconds with it. Um, you know, and that's, that's an example of these spiritual immortals that live for between two to 3,000 years. We really don't know how long. They're not in the fossil record. Um, I kind of question that little sort of like that weird alien thing they found down there at the southern tip of South America, I think in Chile or someplace. Um, you know, but similar, okay, you know, now we're into the, you know, not far removed from, and you guys have probably seen pictures of it. It's been splashed in the news several several places. Um, but yeah, some of these things are like, they have reptilian legs, they have bird legs, they have deer legs. Um, uh, another one of my friends ran across, you know, keep in mind that these are folks that, I mean, they live out on the land almost. I mean, especially with the park service, that's your work. You know, um, you're up there all the time. Um, you know, but this other guy, he was a surveyor out in, out in Arizona and, and they had a job on the Navajo lands and he was out there and it was like right before a thunderstorm. And he sees this thing that looked like a um, like a pan, you know, where it's got deer legs and and then a human and then a human torso and head and arms. And I mean, this thing, it was just a glimpse. It was like, wow, they both surprised each other and the, the thing took off, um, you know, and that was, I think, near the Hopi Reservation in that area. Um, you know, and that area is rich with this, you know, with these stories about these thunder gods and, you know, um, you know, they're, they're like twins and there's, and there's two of them and they kind of war back and forth. And, um, but they're very heavy as far as, um, you know, imbued in the spirituality. A lot of times they're very malevolent. Um, they'll do, they'll do bad things to you. And, um, and so it's just this, this fascinating bunch of lore um, you know, and this is the thing with native lore. I mean, we have these big salamanders in these lakes up in the Trinities. You know, of course, they're not there, but to the natives, they totally believe in them. Um, you know, there's, there's a, it's similar to our Greek mythology. You know, it's not that far removed from having a, you know, a Hercules or, you know, the giants and the small people. And so following in that theme, you know, um, but, you know, uh, I mean, uh, you know, and another thought to this was, I think it was a National Geo or maybe it was um, it was a History Channel. They had a story about this where um, it was in the Squamish Nation. And this was up north of Vancouver, B.C., where you had a shaman up there. And basically what he was doing was training his apprentices. You know, and over the years, he would run across one or two of them and he would say, you guys, you're singled out over here. And he had a special job for them that basically almost like a job of suicide where he would train them really well to know their way around the woods, be able to survive with nothing. And then he would release them and turn them loose out there. 
And over the years, they would just become wild men. I mean, you know, semi-hairy or completely hairy, you know, with deer skins and everything like this. Um, and But then from time to time, he would go out there and kind of interview them or talk to them and learn the secrets of the forest. And, um, and it's, you know, once again, it's kind of like getting right to the heart of the wild. You know, um, I mean, it's just... And it's crazy the things you can learn if you spend that much time out there. And, you know, it's like imagine you spend an entire deer or an entire year studying the deer. You know, um, um, yeah. a great side story to that was in Florida. That guy with uh, um, it's a PBS story. It's called My, My Life as a Turkey. And um, he basically hatches these wild turkey eggs. And those turkeys become like he's the parent. He's he's mama. And so, and taking them out on walks and stuff and the things they would spot, like their copperheads and, you know, just their ability to that attunement, you know, he stepped into their world. And it's fascinating. That's one Are thing you- people have lost along the way is that ability to have that connection with nature, just because we've been so pushed into society as we know it. Like we obviously inherently would have these abilities. It's just that we've adapted away from them because of the way we live our lives now. That's right. That's right. And very unsustainably on the land, you know, and we're seeing the ill effects of that now. And, you know, and so it's a, um, and it's just a, it's, it's really something that, I mean, that's why it's, you know, it's kind of like we're the antithesis of what, of what, of what Bigfoot, let's call him Jesus and the little people, God um, would want, you know, because, because that's why they relate to the tribes because, and also that's why they try to help because, they're trying to live in a, in an otherwise inhospitable place. And so have you ever, uh, have you ever talked with Ron Moorhead by any chance? I have, I have. Yeah. We tried to do an interview and the zoom channel went, yeah. And so, you know, and he was kind of like, he's amateurs, you know, (laughs) I mean, I I think he, um, but, but yeah, I enjoy his book and I've, I've tried to communicate with him since then. Um, but you know, um, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, I mean, the weird thing is, is that, um, I'm not sure, like, I'm not sure about his whole thing there, but I think the sounds are real. And, um, and I do think that, um, that he does mention some interesting things there that these things know how to avoid cameras. They know how to avoid, you know, any kind of contact. Katie's going to try to disconnect us. Um, and so, and so, you know, it's, it's something that, um, that I think he hits on a couple of, you know, resonant points that I agree with, um, you know, and then the whole quantum mechanics and, and, you know, all around that. Um, yeah. I mean, this is where we step into the scientific world that we just, we just don't know yet, you know? And so, and so, and what's their connection to here and, you know, where is, okay, they're dimensional. What does that mean? Really? You know, right. Maybe so, we we could do something in the future where we could have you and Ron both on and do like a just like a small roundtable discussion on the topic because I've had Ron on my show. Uh, I, I have my own show. Shane and I do this one together, and he's just he's so fascinating to talk to about the quantum uh, quantum Bigfoot and and his theories on it and, and what have you and. You spoke of the the uh, the Sierra sounds. You can clearly hear in there that there is a language that they are speaking, and it's right. so fat fascinating to to hear. And it makes you wonder. Okay, 
because we we were talking about a lot of the Native American lore and and you have to sing a native tongue and what have you. What if what if what he captured was actually the earliest form of a native tongue that maybe some Native Americans actually did speak at one time, but had lost over the years of being pushed off land or pushed to different areas due to food or, or, or what have you? For sure. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, fortunately, fortuitously, like, um, you know, the University of California, Berkeley, their anthropology, you know, their anthropology library, they have recordings going all the way back to like the 1890s. And, and, you know, a lot of that is not, it's not even, um, that doesn't even compare to what you're talking about as far as that ancient language, you know, because that could step back, you know, a thousand years before. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what do we know about that? And, you know, an example of that also is that, like, look at these treasure galleons and the whole story of Mel Fisher and going after the Atosha and how they had to go. There was one fellow he was doing, re- there was a researcher with Mel Fisher where he went back to the archives there in Seville. And not only did you have to be able to learn Spanish, but also archaic Spanish and being able to read those 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 logbooks from those sea captains um, and to interpret that as to where they were last at or, you know, their routes and stuff like this. And so that's that's an example of it where we get into like ancient language and how these things would speak that and how much did the shamans do the same? Yeah. So that's that's fascinating. Good stuff. Yeah, that would be fun, though, to do a, you know, do a thing with Ron, because I think I might be able to help bridge that gap as far as the importance of what the natives were doing in this mm-hmm. place that he goes to, um, you know, and, you know, and did he just happen to hit on a place that is, um, I mean, what the natives would refer to today as the forbidden zone. Basically, yeah. basically, he's in their church. Yeah, very, 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 very possible. Yeah. And so, cool. And that's, that's one thing I'd love to connect, you know, to reconnect with him on that. Um, and also just on a side note, cause he lives up, up in the Olympic peninsula and, you know, I collect old forest service maps and that's, that's part of my, I mean, I have like two full boxes of the history of the Olympics um, from early explorations. Um, you know, all the different, all the different stuff up there. It's a fascinating area. Yeah. It's our temperate rainforest. Yeah. Yeah. De- Definitely. Are you familiar with uh, Tom Seawood by any chance? Yes. He's a, oh, okay. I, I've talked to him a couple times and tried to, we tried to get him on, on this show. There's just scheduling conflicts with time and, and what have you, especially this time of year. But the, the knowledge that he brings from the Kwakwakiwak tribe and how they hold oh, dear to the, the, the Sasquatch and, and, you know what they call the the Juniqua and and what have you it is fascinating and i could sit and talk to that guy for hours <laughs> yeah yeah it is fun and you know the thing you know another interesting one there is at the american museum of natural history in new york if you go to the northwest room go to the back 
and they have a display case of, of buckboos and zonaqua. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, um, but they're just the skins. They were probably bear skins or something. Mm-hmm. But the goal of that was to dress up in these, and then they would have these initiation ceremonies where you know it was like amongst the natives, the one percent, and the kids that are going to inherit that prime clamming bed, fishing spot, whatever it is. And so they would have these kids in this initiation ceremony. And part of it was they would kidnap them, drag them off in the woods, and they would meet Bukwus and Zonaqua. And basically the threat there is, is that they're going to get eaten in small bites, you know, and boiled over a cook fire and everything like this if they screwed up their inheritance. And so, um, and so, you know, and it, and it goes through this whole little spiel and to them in that forest at that time, small children, I mean, they were just absolutely freaked. And so it taught them not to gamble away their inheritance or do something mm-hmm. stupid, lose their clamming bed. <laughs> Pretty cool. This was a very interesting discussion and I, I hate to, to cut it short, uh, I would love to have you back on for a part two where we can actually uh, go on this uh, a little bit longer because I don't, we barely scratched the surface with your book and the information that I, I more than wholeheartedly know that you can, you can take us down a, a rabbit hole that we've never, ever gone on with Sasquatch before. And yeah, I will uh, e- e- email um, Ron and see if I can set something up with, with the four of us that we can can do it he's now on the east coast i think he lives down in the carolinas um the Mm. last i talked to him so um that sounds great yeah and you know send me an email and i'll send you some other information um you know and also some other because another thing too if i can find out where you guys are from all reference in this book as far as the tribal stuff that's happening in your area you know and kind of the names of them, who they were, what they did, how they, you know, you know, how they circulated there. Yeah. And for one last time, let our listeners know where they can get your book and where they could find you if you are on social media or anything like that. Yeah. Mainly Facebook, you know, us old guys. Um, um, and so, and so, yeah, but, um, so yeah, Greg Walter author also I'm on Greg Walter, like insurance or something like this. That's, that's where I do a lot of the local history stuff. And, um, and I'm fairly active. I haven't been so much lately cause it's Medicare season. Um, and then also obviously you can get my book on Amazon. You can get it also, um, you can get it directly through me. My email is gwalter2017 at gmail.com. That's gwalter2017 at gmail. And um, that's my book, Ridge Rockers in Two Worlds. Um, I'm still tinkering with several edits that I want to do, you know, just to make it faster, better, and more. And so, um, but yeah, that, that would be great. We'd love to be on, you know, another show or whatever you guys would like to do. You are a wealth of knowledge, my friend, and I really yes. appreciate this conversation today. And it was a, it was a great conversation. And again, like he said, we hate to cut it short, but it'll just get people excited for part two because they can already tell it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, the the one I would the one I would also the Dark Watchers is one of my favorite stories. This is the little people of Big Sur, and that was because Spanish and Spanish California called them Los Vigilantes Oscuros meaning the dark watchers, meaning it dated back to Spanish, California. Really mm. cool. Really good stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> cool. Thank you guys. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you, sir. All right. Make it a great day out there. Will do. And Thanks. to all the listeners, uh, we love and appreciate you. And we'll catch you on the next one. I'm Shane. And I'm Ghost. And have, have a good, good night, call. everybody. <laughs>